Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read the first nine verses in a moment. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul who helped to start Christianity. He started it by starting churches and then moving on and starting other churches that started other churches that started other churches. Paul was always traveling around getting churches started, but of course that meant that he had to do a lot of his pastoring by mail, by writing to the churches to make sure that they were sticking with the message that he'd originally given. And these churches in Galatia, uh, southern Turkey as we'd now call it, had begun to flirt with some teaching that Paul did not give them. In fact, teaching that went against the message that Paul had given them. And Paul was watching these churches fall back into a, a kind of religious bondage, into a kind of spiritual slavery which he knew was not good for them and was not God's plan. It wasn't God's rescue that he'd set in place through Jesus Christ. And he wanted to bring them back to the freedom of the good news of Jesus. So that's what this letter is about. We've been looking at it the last couple of mornings. We've got today and tomorrow to get a bit further into it. And I'm going to read to you from chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. So let's read it together. It says this. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And... Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Let's just pray, shall we? Father, thank you for this book. And we thank you for the one about whom all these words are written your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you'd send the Spirit of your Son to this tent right now, into our hearts, so that we would cry out as those who've become your children and heirs of God, Abba, Father, that we would become those who know who they are by your grace, in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, a young lady, about 37 years old, in the States, uh, involved in some social justice activism, uh, was outed by her parents as white. 
she had presented herself publicly as a black woman, uh, trying to make out that that's who she was, being part of a civil rights movement, uh, looking to help uh, justice for black people in America. And her parents were offended that she had claimed to be black when they, both of them white, knew very well that she wasn't. And they said, no, no, she, she's actually white, she's our daughter. She responded to the media attention by saying, I am black because I say so. I self-identify as black. Around the same time, a father in Toronto of seven children and uh, in his later years uh, decided to leave his wife and children because he'd begun to self-identify as a six-year-old girl. And uh, more recently, uh, we have the first case of someone who claims to be uh, dealing with species dysphoria. A 20-year-old girl in Norway who has claimed that she was born into the wrong species and no longer wants to identify as a human. So these are extreme examples I'm giving you of something that is more widespread currently. Basically, the tendency of individuals more and more and more to reject a given identity in favor of a chosen identity, self-identification, saying, I will not be what I am told I am, I will be what I choose to be. Now, this happens more and more and more commonly nowadays, and you could say it's, it's it's the behavior of a society that's lost its way a little bit. It's people who are trying to recover from the shipwreck of a lot of the old, ordinary things that held us together in our culture in generations gone by. And it's people kind of in the shipwreck trying to hold on to the flotsam and jetsam, you know, all the planks of wood and the bits that, that, that survive the ship to see if they can survive. You know, I, will, I will find some way of identifying myself because there don't seem to be any decent ways left anymore. But you could ask the question, why did we ever get on the ship in the first place? Why have we ever tried to create human identity for ourselves, whether as individuals or socially? Well, the reason we do it is because the Bible says that we did it at the very beginning. The reason we got on the boat, the reason we left the rock, if you like, left the land, the reason we, we stepped away from knowing who we really are was because we, we ultimately refused the identity we were given by our Creator. Our mistake, our decision was to say to God, you will not tell me who I am. I will choose who I am. In fact, the way that the serpent in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 uh, spoke to Adam and Eve. You might know this story at the very beginning of your Bible. The first human beings were told, if you follow me, if you follow the way I'm going, if you let me tell you your destiny, you will become as God's. Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. You will become as gods. You will be gods in your own right, knowing wrong from right, knowing good from evil. You'll choose your own destiny. And of course, what we were doing was actually sawing off the branch that we were sitting on. 
Because only God can really tell you who you are. The only one who's got that authority and that wisdom and that ability is, is your creator. And, and in fact, in the Bible, we're sometimes referred to as branches of a tree, those who belong to God. You know what a branch has to do to live? It has to actually be part of a tree. It has to be fused into a tree trunk. When a branch declares independence, it might imagine to itself as a clever branch, you know, I've, I, I voted leave. That was a clever joke. I voted leave, leave, get it? I didn't think of that until just now. And I left the tree and I am free from the tree because I am a branch Unto myself, I declare independence from the tree. And of course, what happens is the branch <laughs> dies, shrivels up. There's no fruit from that branch ever again because it, its independence secured its own destruction, its own withering. And that's the story of humanity. In trying to say, God, you will not tell me who I am. In fact, no one will. In fact, I alone will decide my destiny. We're really giving ourselves to, to death. In fact, Paul says in uh, this passage I've just read to you, in verse uh, 3, that we really are giving ourselves to elementary principles. We're becoming enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He uses that kind of language. We're becoming enslaved to other gods, other powers, created things. Not the creator, but creation starts to control us. <laughs> it starts to enslave us. We think we're wandering off into freedom, but it's quite the opposite. And this is what leads to the worship of other gods. And people through history have always done this. You go anywhere in the world, you'll find worship. People are born worshipping. They will worship. And you, you go to ancient cities of, 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 of uh, civilization, places like Athens and Rome. I've got the privilege of being in Athens a couple of times this last uh, year or two and, and seeing again just the amazing temples that were constructed in generations gone by as offerings of worship to powerful gods, pagan gods that people were frightened of and wanted to know how they could control and how they could get them on side and hopefully get good treatment from and they'd be frightened of the gods, the elementary powers of this world. And we might think, well, we've stepped way, way away from that. We don't do that anymore. We, we don't submit to stupid pagan gods. But I would suggest that we do. We do as a culture. One of my favorite quotations about this is from a man called um, David Foster Wallace. He, he was a novelist who wrote lots of books a few years ago. And he, he actually uh, committed suicide tragically uh, only recently. But he, he wrote this before he died. He wasn't a Christian, but he had amazing insight. He says this, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. 
Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious to the default settings. So we do this without realizing we're doing it. We will worship something, and the thing that we worship will end up controlling us and and kind of identifying us, telling us who we are, and making us think this is what I really ought to be. One simple example of this, I guess, would just be popularity, um, profile, being accepted and approved by other people. I came across a, a, an interesting quotation recently attached to uh, an Instagram picture. Somebody put out an Instagram picture that went viral. And uh, maybe it'll come up on the screen. You won't be able to see the quotation underneath it because the words are too small. But this is a picture of uh, just an attractive young woman. And you might think she looks kind of carefree and happy. But if you read what's underneath it, it's kind of interesting. She says, please like this photo. I put on makeup, curled my hair, tight dress, big uncomfortable jewelry. Took over 50 shots until I got one I thought you might like. Then I edited this one selfie for ages on several apps just so I could feel some social approval from you. There is nothing real about this. So we, we have this issue as humanity that having cut ourselves off from the one who tells us who we are, we are searching for other ways of identifying ourselves and trying to prove ourselves and Ultimately, what we're doing is keeping ourselves away from the one who has the, the authority and the willingness to graciously bring us into the knowledge of who he is and as a result, who we really are and can be. Our problem ultimately is that we've got this kind of pathological allergy. We just don't want him. We react against him left to ourselves. And this affects everybody. Now, this is, the, this is the thing that we're probably aware of already. But Paul has to say something in verse 9 that will surprise us. He's, he's talking to Galatians who mostly were not Jews. They were not from a Jewish background, most of these people. Some of them were, most of them probably weren't. And they knew all about the pagan gods of, of Greek and Roman culture that people were frightened of, that people did various forms of worship to to get them on side. They knew all about the powers, the spiritual powers of this world. And they were glad that Jesus had come through Paul's preaching and rescued them from those powers. They'd been set free from the slavery and they were glad about this. Glad that they, they didn't have to come under the pagan power of these false elementary gods that, that weren't even real. They just created elementary powers that take spiritual power off people. Glad to be free from that. And now Paul says something in verse 9 that ought to have shocked them when they first read this. He says to them, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? What's he saying? He's saying to people who are not going back to their old, previous, pagan, who cares about the God of Israel ways, they're actually 
trying to take the God of Israel more seriously by going back to the law and trying to please God through their own behavior, their own legal, law-abiding, good behavior. They're thinking, this is the way to relate to the God that I met. This is the best way to relate to Paul's God, to the God of Jesus Christ. It's going to be through my own performance of the law, observation of rules and regulations, and as a means of trying to please God and keep him happy. And Paul is saying in verse 9, that is the same thing as your old pagan idolatry. The, The old life you had before you met Jesus and the life you're walking into, if you try to live a a religious, legalistic, law-abiding, trying to keep God happy through my behavior lifestyle, they're basically the same thing. See, the message of the Bible is that you can avoid God in one of two ways. You can avoid God by living a totally irreligious, selfish lifestyle. And in our culture, I guess that would mean, you know, I guess abuse of alcohol, drugs. It would mean getting into a lifestyle that is considered to be irreligious and debauched and, and evil and wicked and getting out and, and, and just, you know, wasting yourself. That's, that's, that's one way of avoiding God, wasting yourself. But there's also another way of avoiding God. And that is just by keeping the rules. Just by doing the things you're supposed to do. Living a compliant, legalistic life. Weirdly enough, you can avoid God quite successfully by doing that, it would seem. There's a story in the Bible of two brothers. One of whom takes his father's inheritance, squanders it, wastes it on prostitutes, drunkenness, wild living... The other brother stays at home and does all the work, but he does it begrudgingly. He does it miserably. He doesn't do it gratefully. He does it to prove that he is the good brother. Neither of the two brothers really knows their father. In fact, both those brothers are trying to use either their their selfishness or their self-righteousness as a way to keep away from their father. And the Bible consistently warns us against both dangers. And Paul's doing the same. He's saying, by by going into that religious life, you're actually going back to avoidance of the real God who you got to know. Because humanity seems to be somehow virused. There's something in us. There's some virus that's got in that seems to react against the knowledge of God the Father. It's there. It's in the heart of humanity 1.0. And somehow there needs to be a solution. What Paul's presented to them is the solution that God brought into being through his son, Jesus Christ. See, from the beginning, men and women have had this virus of of keeping away from God the Father. But then there came one man, as he says so beautifully here in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God's way of dealing with humanity 1.0 was to bring into the world humanity 2.0, the second Adam. And this, this one, this perfect man 
born of a woman, born under the law, did the law perfectly. Not just outwardly, perfectly. From a pure heart of love, trust, worship, delight in God the Father. Never, ever sinning. His life was pure and blameless. He never at any time deviated from what the Father said. And he was always pleased to submit to the Father. Not just the Father's commands, but the Father's identifying of him as his son. He, he was from the heart through all of his life saying, I will put my trust in you. I will put my trust in you. In everything that he did, that is, that is what was underneath his skin. That was what was in his heart. On any day of his life, at any minute, any, any, any hour, any day, ever, any week, any month, any year of his life, he was constantly saying for himself, I, I trust the Father, I trust the Father, I trust. He trusted the Father when he was told he was foolish for trusting the Father. And not just by anybody, but by Satan himself. Jesus trusted the Father in the wilderness when he was offered everything else, just like Adam had been offered his own route. Follow me, you'll be like God. Satan said the same thing to Jesus. Follow me. I'll give you everything you want. Jesus said, no, I trust the Father. I trust the Father. I love the Father. I trust him. He's good. I won't let you tell me who I am. He tells me who I am. Trusted the Father in the wilderness, and then a few years later, he trusted the Father in a garden. When again, the snake came to him and said to him, there's a way out, there's a way out, there's a way out. Take your own way out. Release yourself from this burden of having to carry the cross for this broken, ungrateful humanity. Jesus said, no, not my will, but yours be done. Yours be done. This is the second Adam. This is the perfect man. This is our hero, our rescuer. He lived the life that Adam should have. And because Jesus lived that life, and we have been baptized into Jesus by the Holy Spirit, we have lived that life too. And we are raised with him as those who are in the Son, adopted in the Son. So that on Easter Sunday, you know the story when Mary came looking for Jesus in the garden, expecting to find a dead body in the tombs. She instead found this gardener who she didn't recognize at first, but the moment she suddenly saw who he was, because he turned to her and said, Mary. And she knew him from the way he said her name. And she was so ecstatic and she goes to, 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 to cling to him. She wants to just see him, touch him and just, is it you? Lord? And he says, don't touch me. I must go to be with my father and your father. This, this is what Jesus accomplished for us. By dying and rising, he's able to say to you and me, people like us, broken sons and daughters of Adam, broken in our father Adam, Jesus comes as the second Adam and says, my father and your father. We have this extraordinary privilege of identification with God through his son. It means everything changes because of what he's done. It means that we have the privilege of intimacy with God. 
Jesus says, he's my father and he's yours. It's like he wants to make the point, the love that the father has for the son is the same. Now this is one of the things that probably is hardest to believe in the whole Bible. There's a lot of things in the Bible that are freaky and weird. You think, I don't know how I believe that. That's just crazy. I tell you, there's nothing more crazy than this. That God the Father loves his children adopted in Christ with the same love that he loves his eternally begotten son with. (sighs) Adopted. It also means that we have identity as heirs. This, by the way, is why the Bible uses the word sons rather than children at this point. Sometimes the Bible talks about us as being children of God. Other times it talks about us being sons, and it does it deliberately. So just to help you um, who, who might be thinking, what, what about the women? Why, why, why did you say sons and daughters? It's very inclusive, and it means everybody, but it's specifically talking about our inheritance, See, Paul's writing in the time of primogeniture when when the eldest son would be the heir, the one who inherited everything. And he's saying, you are the heir. If if you're in Christ, you're in the heir, you're in the son, you inherit all God's goodness, all God's plans and blessings that he wants to bring into the world. They're yours in Christ. You're you're an heir. And so, you girls, you don't have to think, well, I'm not a son, I'm a daughter. Well, you can say you're a son, that's fine. You're an heir. Just as much as the guys are. We're heirs together, as Peter says. And if the guys think that makes them look cool, well, you guys need to get used to uh, being the bride of Christ. Okay, so let's just not get too cocky about this. Both of us have to have our minds blown, all right? But the, the, the point is that you are inheritors, you're heirs. Let me put it like this. There's a picture that I want you to just look at just to help you think about this. So you've got a little boy there who does not have a clue. <laughs> he's, he's just an ordinary kid. If you said to that little boy, what's it like being the heir of royalty, a future king? He wouldn't actually know what to say. He just is. That's, that's what he is. And he'll, he'll grow into it. He'll, he'll become aware as he grows of the staggering privilege he has. He'll gradually get it. And I think the Christian life is a little bit like that, right? We spend our lives gradually getting it. Gradually. Because it's going to take forever. It's going to take forever and ever. Maybe that's one of the reasons why heaven is forever, because it's going to take us that long to get what God has done for us in Christ. We're heirs of God, equal in this arrangement with the Son. And then he says in verse 6 something that makes it so real for us. He says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, so the issue that we would have probably is, is that We can believe that something is true and yet struggle to feel it. You know that experience? Just, just, yeah, I know it's true. I know it's true. I believe it's true, but 
I, I don't feel like it's true. In fact, most of the time, maybe we don't feel like it's true. God is so kind. He doesn't just send us his son. He, he sends us his spirit. He sends us the spirit of the son into our hearts so that we feel it. That's why he uses the word cry. So that you cry, Abba Father. Not so that you deduce Abba Father. Not so that you recognize Abba Father. Not so that you scribble it down on a piece of paper, Abba Father. You cry it from the heart. You know it so well. It becomes a cry. You can't even articulate it very well with words. Sometimes, sometimes, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us in a powerful way, we're so aware of our adoption as God's children that we can only cry. We can only cry it out. We don't even know the words to use. Abba, Abba. That's the Aramaic word for father. The word Jesus would have used as a little kid talking to his carpenter father, Joseph. And then later on, the disciples heard him praying to the God of heaven, Abba. And Paul says, you've got the same spirit in you. You need the Spirit to help us know that it's real. There's such a thing as being legally adopted but not feeling adopted. Stories like Steve's are so helpful because it, it gives the example of somebody who, yeah, there are legal papers that declare you are the child of these parents. This is your father. Legally it is declared. And that's a good thing. To be able to say, like Paul says, because you are sons of God, in verse 6, you are, and that's good to be able to come back to the Bible. Sometimes we don't feel like sons of God. We don't feel it at all sometimes. And just to come back and read and say, no, I am, I am. It says it here. It says it here. Just like an adopted child in today's society might say, at times when they don't feel very adopted, they might look at the legal papers and remember the law court and the judge and the gavel say, this is done, case dismissed, you are adopted. This is your family. This is your father now. And they might remind themselves and persuade themselves with the word, with truth. And we need truth. We need the word. We desperately depend on it. And the Holy Spirit will work through the truth to help it secure in our hearts. But the Holy Spirit will also sometimes come upon us. Even when we're not reading it. Even when we find it hard to believe, he will help us to feel it. And this is one of the things that it's right for us to pray for. Say, God, I don't just want to know it's true just because the preacher said so. I don't want to know it's true just because I see it here. I want to also know you've quickening this to my consciousness, to use a big flashy word. I just mean, I want to feel it. I want to feel adopted. That's not a bad prayer to pray, friends. You're allowed to pray that. In fact, you're instructed to. You're encouraged to pray. God, help me to feel my sonship. Help me to feel that you're my father. Maybe that will happen today as we worship and pray. I'm looking for that to, to happen through this campsite over these next few days. More and more of the awareness by the Holy Spirit's work of our adoption. One of the great preachers of a long time ago, a man called Thomas Goodwin, he put it like this. He said, imagine a son taking a walk with his father and they're just kind of walking together, sharing the day, enjoying the conversation walking through life. And then at a certain point on the path, the father turns to the son and puts his arms around him and says, I love you, I'm proud of you, you are mine. And Thomas Goodwin says, what's the difference between the two things? Just walking along and embracing. What's the difference? He says, in one sense, there's no difference at all. 
the son that's walking along, just a normal Christian walking through life, just doing the normal Christian walk like we will all do for the rest of this year, I trust. You're just as adopted as you are any other time, but there are also the times when the Father's embrace becomes so real to us. And we should long for those times to make space for them, receive them, pray for them, experience his loving Holy Spirit reminding us of our identity. Let me give you to finish really quickly a few things that help us to see the difference between this kind of relationship with God and the legalistic religious one that the Galatians were wanting to climb under. Okay, so we're looking now at the difference between the Father and the law. The Father and the law. Okay, and really simply, the first of them is that the Father affirms us. The Father affirms us. That's the main note in the Father's relationship with us. Don't forget that when Jesus was baptized, he hadn't done any miracles. He hadn't done any preaching. Jesus, by this time, had done nothing famous. He had not completed the task Jesus had been called to do by the Father. And yet, when Jesus is baptized, he comes out of the water, and the Father's voice booms from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God says over his children, my beloved in whom I am well pleased, before his children do anything. You might feel like, yeah, I love what you're saying, and presumably I need to get to know my father and then he'll really love me. If I read my Bible and pray, then I'll start to know his love. Not necessarily, in fact, don't go there. Immediately understand he is for you before you do anything. Receive his affirmation at the start. The second thing, God the Father works on our heart before our behavior. The law, the law constantly criticizes you and attacks your behavior. Don't do that again. Stop doing that. That's bad. Don't do this. Don't do this. God the Father works on your heart, changing your desires, causing you to love him more and obey him out of a heart of obedience and trust in him. You love him because of what he and his son have done for you, and so you obey him with faith and confidence and joy because your heart is changed. It doesn't attack your behavior first. It comes on your heart first. Thirdly, God the Father gives you time. He gives you time. The law didn't give us any time, did it? <laughs> stop doing that. I, I can't stop doing that. I, don't, I didn't ask if you can or you can't. Just stop it. The, the law comes to you and, and, and demands immediate obedience, demands immediate perfection. We can't do immediate perfection, and our Father knows that, and He treats us so kindly. He gives us time to change. We change over time. Some of the things you struggle with, you think, am I ever going to see change in this area? Am I ever going to kick this habit? Am I ever going to stop struggling with this? Well, the answer is yes. It might take some time, but God's, God's your Father. He'll give you time. He'll help you with time to change. Fourthly, God the Father sees us in our weakness and cares in our weaknesses. This is the important difference between the, father of, the, the fatherhood of God and, and, and the law. Again, it, in a legal relationship, let's look at it like an employer and an employee. If I've got people working for me and they keep screwing up, for the good of the company, for the good of the organization, I might in the end have to say, you're fired. This isn't going to work. You can't do that job anymore. You're gone. That doesn't work. That's, that's how it has to work in an organization like that. I have kids. When my kids screw up, which believe it or not, they occasionally do, 
I'm not going to turn to them and say, you're fired. You're out. In fact, when my kids screw up, I kind of feel like I'm their dad even more. <laughs> this really is my kid. I really, really am going to get close. I really am going to spend time with this one. God sees you in your weakness and runs to you, even if you feel like running from him. And then finally, my favorite one of all is actually in verse 9, where it says this. Now that you've come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. To be known by God. See, one of the most precious things about this relationship with God, not by the law, but through Jesus, by faith, by the Spirit coming into our hearts, to the Father, is that he actually knows us. I think some of us, our Christian life is basically Jesus rescued me like Spider-Man rescues people. Spider-Man rescues people, but he doesn't let them see who he is. Batman rescues people, but the mask never comes off. God's not like that. He doesn't just rescue you. He, he invites you into the relationship with him. It was always about that in the first place. What you needed rescuing from was a life without him. Let me put it like this. I'll, I'll finish with this. There's a, a story I can imagine in my head of a, of a family sitting down with a board game. Maybe it's a family whose dad has been away for a long time traveling. And... Uh, Maybe he's a soldier, I don't know, he's been at the war. And they've wondered if he's going to come home. They've wondered if he's safe. They're not sure. But they're trying to occupy themselves and not get too distracted and exhausted with worry and anxiety about their father. So they, they do stuff. They, they watch movies, they, they read books, they, they play board games. And they're, they're playing this board game and they get quite into it. They really like this game. They're really excited about it. And they start obsessing about who's going to win. In fact, like children sometimes do, they start over-obsessing. They start getting over-competitive. They start fighting. They start getting anxious about who's the winner and who's the loser. Who's going to come second? Who's going to come third? And it, it becomes a little bit prickly. And then there's this knock at the door. And mum goes and opens it. And they see that it's Dad. And, and in the, the, the obvious expected fuss that follows, this board game gets kicked everywhere. The pieces just fly. The, 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 the fake money is all gone. Everything is just, is just ruined. As they all run over to the father. But there's, there's one, one kid who stays at the board game. And he's trying to put it back together. He's, I just, I just, I, he tries to flatten the board out. He tries to put the pieces where they were. He tries to distribute the cards and the money as he imagines. He's trying to remember who had what. He's determined, I'm going to win this game. I'm going to win this game. This is all about winning this game. He knows the father's there, but this, this board game seems more important. And the others are like, what? The, it's finished. It's that way of showing that you're important, that way of winning or losing, <laughs> it's gone. You're not a winner or a loser. You're a child of the Father. That's the only thing that matters. And some of us, we, we stay at the board game 
I'm just a loser. I'm going to be a winner. And I'm telling you, the board game's finished. Who cares? Who cares? Your father's come. Your father's come. Let's stand together right now and worship God.